Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast taking nerding to an extreme. That's nerding, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Nerding? Nerding. Nerding. How do you nerd? This week we have Andrea, Hope, Laura, and Kellen. (laughs) And this week we are talking about reading really challenging things. Um, We all realized that reading, especially when it comes to trying to be like a good, uh, quote unquote, good leftist, sometimes means reading really challenging things. And Ambria had the amazing idea to have an episode about what are our tips and tricks and like what have we done in the past and what have we struggled with in the past and what is our advice going forward. So. But I think before we do that, we definitely wanted to talk about what we were drinking. Specifically, what Ambria's drinking. <laughs> uh, yeah, apparently nobody's very impressed uh, that I'm, I uh, made myself a nice little glass of wine and vermouth because I had one little dribble of wine and I said, well, that's not enough. And uh, I had a big old bottle of vermouth, so I just threw that in there. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So wait, are you a mixologist now? (laughs) But it has alcohol in it. Yeah. No, yes. I was born a mixologist, actually. (laughs) Clearly. Well, my question is, what kind of wine and what kind of vermouth? This is some dessert table wine that my roommate left behind, like, a long time ago. And a a dry vermouth that I think was also hers. So. (laughs) Well, if you're going to mix dessert wine, it has to be dry vermouth. There's no other way to go. You go with ah. vermouth, you're gonna be regretting it. Let me tell you. I mm, see. So true. So real. Yeah. Mm. My drink is my drink is pretty sad too. I'm drinking half of a warm Asahi because I spilled the other half on our coffee table right before we started recording. Oh, <laughs> <what is> it? <laughs> it's a uh, half of an Asahi, the beer. <laughs> Oh, is that that really expensive beer? They make the really good ginger beer? Um, no, Asahi is just like a really good, I think it's Japanese beer, but it's not expensive. But it was our last one, and I legit (laughs) spilled, bumped a table and spilled half of it immediately before we started recording. Oh. Mm, mm. That's that's what we do. (laughs) I'm drinking in this house. I am (laughs) drinking, we spill drinks in this house. I am drinking. A yellowtail mailback nice. purchased by my partner's mom. Ooh. And she wanted me to let her know how it is. And I can say that it is okay. <laughs> ah, yellowtail. That's a great year. Uh, it's definitely <laughs> wine. Yeah. <laughs> can I'm confirm a... this will get me drunk if I drink enough. Yes. I'm drinking fruit punch. So. What a responsible Ooh, choice. I mean, not that's... for your blood sugar, but. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard about the cane sugar industry? Or wait, what is it? It's the corn syrup Corn industry. syrup. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like... Freeze. We have to change the topic of this episode. It's too important. Psych, we're not going to talk about books. We're talking about the corn syrup industry. 
Oh, I was like, where is this going? Even though I literally just said that. (laughs) I also like to think that you actually believe that I might do that right now. Like, forget all our plans. I was ready. I was sitting here. I was like, that's fine. I'm in. I'm ready for whatever you're saying. And I'm ready to go. Let's make some shit. We support you. We support you so Um, much. So according to Wikipedia, um, (laughs) corn syrup... Oh. <laughs> so what we were thinking is that for the beginning of the first segment um, before our break, what we would do is kind of just talk about our personal experiences with trying to read difficult Smarty Pants books. And then kind of the second half is going to be more about tips and tricks and maybe even some books we'd like to recommend tips to you. Tips and tricks. Tips and tricks. <laughs> Oh, I wish I could walk around with you in headphones all the time, Laura. So for me, uh, one of my earliest memories of trying to read difficult books uh, is from when I was in eighth grade. And I was a pretty lonely little kid who moved around a lot and lived, you know, in the cornfields. And I often like to think of myself as a real deep thinker, you know, I really thought that I should get into philosophy. So after quite a bit of just like pining and writing in my diary about how much I really had a philosophical soul, I got my mom to take me to the library. All right, so this is my moment. I was going to read philosophy. whole world was going to open up for me. The librarian showed me to the section. You watched The NeverEnding Story the night before you went there. Oh, fuck yeah, I did. I was also really into <laughs> anime. Um <laughs> Mm-hmm. That nurtures the philosophical soul right there. I <laughs> uh, had read some manga, too. So, you know what? I can't even tell you what books I looked at that day. I just kept picking up books, looking through them, and I was just completely crushed. I It was like they were written in a different language. I didn't realize at that time that they pretty much were. I just felt mm-hmm. like, I just felt everything I thought about myself just tumbling down. Um, I didn't check anything out, you know, sort of my fantasy fake version of the memory is me just like dropping the books and backing slowly out of the library. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Trying to pretend that that never happened. I was like, what philosophy section at the library? You never had a son, you know, that kind of thing. So a lot of my experiences with difficult books after that were the same. Like I would just give up if anything was challenging. When I was older, like 17 or 18, um, I tried to read Marx. You might you might have heard of him. That didn't Marx. work out. Me and Marx were not meant to be at that time. We both needed to grow a little. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I would like read two pages of the Communist Manifesto and then just like stare at the wall. Yeah. Let's be real that Marx needed to grow the most at that time. Yeah. He needed, he wasn't ready for a woman like me. That's um, true. It didn't work out. I would read two pages, and then I would stare at the wall for a long time and be like, I didn't understand that. I'm dumb. Everything sucks. And I would walk away. Um, So way, way later, and by that I mean like 28 years old, a couple years ago, I was going to sit in on a class at a liberal arts college, um, and it was about, the class itself was about this real German asshole named Heidegger. Um, (laughs) Real German. Real anusy. So they had given me a selection to read, and I was staring at it. And finally, for the first time ever, I called somebody about it. And I called my brother, who's a real-life smarty pants, pretty much a genius. And I was like, what the fuck does this sentence mean? And I read it to him, and he said, well, do you know what the word universal means? And I'm like, (laughs) 
uh, I think I know the word universe, okay? So, you know, it's like the universe. And I don't want to get like too into the weeds on this, but you know, I didn't realize the word is a common philosophy term. It has a certain meaning in that context. Something that is universal and philosophy is like a broad general idea and it's the opposite of particular. It's like the universal when it comes to a chair is the idea of a chair. The category that all the varied and many chairs fit into, they all look different from each other. And then a particular chair is like this very chair that I'm sitting in. It's one instance of something that fits into a larger category. So universal broad ideas versus the particular everyday events and objects we come into contact with is a very big part of pretty much any serious thinking books you might read. But I, please, don't come away from this thinking that I'm suggesting that you should read Heidegger. <laughs> don't do that. I have a million better suggestions for you. But the point is... Walk away. Yeah, just walk <laughs> away. Please. Nobody give whoever gets money for that any more money for that. Um, <laughs> I don't know who that is because Heidegger's obviously dead, but uh, thank goodness. Okay, I'm sorry. It's just... Oh, God. But also true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the point is I realized something really important in that moment, which is that something difficult isn't just about looking at it and being capable or not capable, right? I kind of thought of, like, I would read something and not understand it and be like, oh, I'm just, I just don't get it. That's it. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't have the capacity to understand this. It's a learning process, and I promise if you want to do it, you are capable of doing it. Uh, I ended up going to that college. It changed my life because it taught me that I'm way more capable than I could have imagined and that other people who are reading and speaking and doing philosophy and economics and politics are not who I thought they were. Those people are also people who are struggling to understand and interpret these texts Even when I sound like a smarty pants, I'm still struggling to understand it and interpret it. All the smart people are arguing with each other about what they mean because that's how complicated these works are. And I also want to note that a lot of people are fakers. You, If you start reading and getting into stuff, you're going to be amazed at how many people are just speaking with confidence and they have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, Lots of people do that. Yeah, I think Laura just whispered in case guys, you guys didn't hear it. Uh, they're usually <laughs> men. Um, and Blow my cover, why don't you? <laughs> I just I wanted to like drop a little bit of knowledge here and just say that people who worry that they aren't good enough at reading or good enough at math or like ha- aren't X enough to do Y, it's much more likely that women have these issues as students than or girls have these issues as students than boys do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And the way these things are studied, it's, you know, usually a binary like that. It's a lot of sort of social scientists that are doing these tests are not focusing in on, you know, like transgender children or anything like that. But teachers and parents both are more likely to tell boys, congratulate boys on working hard and more likely to congratulate girls on being smart. Um, And that's a key difference because it says that your ability is innate versus your ability is a product of your effort. Um, Mm. And I think what what Ambria is saying is that that's not the case. And it's so easy to feel like that's what's happening, especially when you're reading stuff that's incredibly dense. 
but it's really you put in work and you'll like you'll see some results it's just like hard work but just because it's hard doesn't mean that you're not good enough or you're you're not smart or anything like that and there's less work and this is a problem that we talked about with some of the women who are on like two episodes ago there's just not a lot of literature on what how these things play out with regards to race and more it's more frequently studied just across a gender binary and Mm. um but I would imagine I mean there's stuff done on on students of color um and testing but I would imagine that a lot of of that plays out in a similar way that you're just more likely to be discouraged either because you know it either comes innately to you or it doesn't and then being written off as it doesn't if something doesn't come naturally to you in in school so if that's something if that's like a past experience that you have whoever like told you that or made you feel that way is full of shit kellen i'm true I'm super glad you brought that up because I'm actually learning to become a grade school teacher right now. And one thing that they're talking to us about a lot is praising the process versus praising the person. And this creates, right, even when I was growing up, I people were always like, you're smart, you're smart, you're smart, you're so smart. And I think although that does something good for your confidence, it also damages you in a way because... Yeah. It's once again, it's this idea of like, either you're a smart person or you're not, right? You're not praising a person for trying. You're praising them for already having achieved something. And then once you do that, they're afraid of anything that's going to threaten that identity. So when I read something that challenges me and I don't understand it, my immediate impulse is to back away from it because, you know, it's going to prove that I'm not the smart person that I thought I was. Yeah, yeah. I also want to add, like, I read in an article on new brain science that came out within the last 10 years. And people used to think that you hit a certain point in your life and you can't actually learn new things. You Like that the brain is literally incapable of becoming smarter. And they found out that that's actually not true. And it is more challenging for you as you age to become smarter. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just means that it doesn't come as easy to you as say when you were at the like largest growth spurts, which is um, your late teens and your pre-pubescent time. So those two times, it's like, that's when you're learning the most. And it's true. But as an adult, good news, you can still learn and you can still (laughs) be a smarty pants and it's super cool. (laughs) Yes. That is good news. I wanted to second the fakers thing so much. I have seen that so much in my PhD program. I didn't have a master's before I went into the program and I went in and everyone was like talking about these theorists and they would take the reading and be like, yes, this reminds me of Michel Foucault or this reminds me of this. And at first I was like very intimidated by that. I was like, oh, I just was picking out these themes within this book I wasn't like bringing it to these different white male theorists that are dead now for a long time. And the longer that I was in the program, the more I started to trust myself. And, you know, we can kind of get into how that happened a little bit later when we do our tips and tricks, Uh, tips and tricks. But (laughs) I think what's important is people are just trying to abate their own self-consciousness And they come out in these strange ways where they're like connecting these things that don't actually make sense. And as soon as you're just like, yeah, this is what I got out of it. 
those people kind of take a step back and they're like, oh, you're just talking about the text and you don't need to like extrapolate it into this much larger thing. Yeah. So many, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like when I started a school where, at a school where we read philosophy and like our whole class was just discussing it, at first so many, sorry to say, so many dudes are like, you know, this is just like what Nietzsche says and we're reading something <laughs> totally different. And I was like, Oh right. man, I'm out of my element. But guess what? That's not, it's not a good way to discuss a text. And the professor would be like, yeah, we're not talking about Nietzsche right now. Um, we don't know how many people in the room have read him. Um, we're going to talk about the text that we're discussing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's also often a ploy to like mask the fact yes. that they probably haven't done the reading. <laughs> it is a diversion <laughs> tactic. If you're trying to talk to somebody about something and they want to talk about anything else that they already know a lot about, it's because they don't feel confident talking about the subject at hand. Not totally. Be- it, it's not that you're dumb and you should have read whatever the fuck it is they're spouting off about. Yes. <laughs> I think there's a degree of narcissism there too, where they're like, yeah, that thing you're talking about sounds interesting, but this thing I know about is even more mm. interesting and I am qualified <laughs> to speak about it. Yeah. Let's bring it yes. back to my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thinking about this week's episode really made me reflect on some of my academic experiences. I was a really voracious reader as a kid, but you know, like a lot of people, college was kind of a whole other thing for me. And I was also a Spanish major, so I took high-level lit classes in Spanish, and we read texts going all the way back to, like, the 1600s in Spanish and had to both translate and then understand them. Um, But I was thinking about the way this sort of dovetails with what Ambria was saying um, and how that kind of comprehension, it was really hard and intimidating at first, and I kind of had to break it down into understanding both the language itself, and I think philosophy has its own language also, so thinking what does this word mean to most people? Kind of what's the accepted definition now? What was it at the time? And then also a deeper comprehension about um, what did it mean to people who read it at the time? What was the historical context? What does it mean to me now? And um, I think you kind of learn that as you go. Mm. So, you know, at first you might feel like, oh, I don't know a lot of these words and I'm not really sure what this story is about. If you kind of just stick with it, it will start to fill in for you a little bit. And you can always come back to it. So those, it was sort of like totally. learning to swim by being thrown in a pool. But yeah. it, <laughs> I think it helped me uh, relax a little bit more when reading like philosophy books or even just like economics books that I felt underqualified to understand because I didn't know the vernacular, you know, yeah. to think like, oh, if I just stick with this, I don't have to look up every word. I'll get mm-hmm. it eventually. Right. And on another note, and I don't want to get too much on a tangent about this, but I've been out of school for a while and I've noticed in the last probably like three or four years that reading challenging books is so much harder than it was like a, like a year out of college. Mm. Um, and some of it may be that I'm out of practice, but I also think that the way we consume information online just doesn't take as much or maybe doesn't reward patience and attention as much. Like I had this, I was reading a book and really had a drive to like open another tab and look at something else while I was reading the book. Um, (laughs) Surround yourself with seven books and like look at one page of one book at a time. Yeah, like that's just kind of, you know, we really have started to reward 
this people who can synthesize information really fast. So if you're able to look at something, immediately make a judgment about it and figure out how to plug it in, you tend mm-hmm. to do better now in a lot of jobs. So I just, that's something I noticed and I was curious if y'all had ever like had any of that happen or not. Totally. Yeah. And it's like a product of neoliberal bullshit, like faster, more efficient, like do this. Don't just the whole, the whole, project of academia at this point is just a business and they don't actually reward learning they only reward (laughs) you're getting this thing you're going fast you're you're getting your receipt which is your diploma and you're out of here and you're Mm -hmm. gonna keep churning the neoliberal machine and that's like exactly you've been trained to do that you've been Mm -hmm. trained to operate in that way yeah, I definitely agree that that there's I'm I'm coming from a particular place like Laura as well where we're both in grad school and I wanted to echo also what Hope said about feeling like a you know being dropped into the deep end of a pool and having to learn how to swim because my like real difficulty my like the hardest time I've had with reading was when I when I started grad school and I'm lucky in that I'm a pretty fast reader mm-hmm. and maybe less lucky lucky and that I'm incredibly neurotic but I was able to do most of my reading in college just through like speed and sheer force of will and like maybe not having a great social life I don't know whatever but then I got to grad school and I also think that there's definitely professors who like to haze their students um Mm. and we we had this mandatory first year class um and the first week of that class that all of the first years had to take this guy assigned us one book that was like 300 pages, which is like a pretty normal assignment for one class. And then another book that was 1200 pages in our first week of grad school to read over the like next week. And 1500 pages of reading is a lot for a single week to say nothing of it just being for one class and like for one class. It was just, yeah. And I was taking other classes too, who, you know, had professors that also assigned their own reading. But anyway, my response to this was to, I remember I, I didn't have class on Wednesdays that semester. So I woke up at 6am on a Wednesday. Um, I was living in this tiny studio apartment, moved, you know, the three feet from my bed to my table and immediately started reading. And I took like an 8am breakfast break and like a noon lunch break and like a 6pm dinner break and read all the way up to about 1030 that night. It was just 16 hours straight of me just sitting in the same place in my apartment and reading. And I, needless to say, was just like super depressed <laughs> that semester. Yeah. I, I just, it, I felt like everybody else knew what they were doing and must be so good at reading to be able to get through this much stuff. And I was sitting here literally pulling 16-hour days just with a book. And I was talking to another grad student who was older than I was or, you know, further along in the program. And she said, you know, you don't actually have to read every word. If you read every word, you'll never be able to finish and you'll never be able to sleep. And I don't know why I needed permission to not read Mm -hmm. every word, which is probably a whole other, you know, episode in itself maybe about what women need permission to do. Right. But I had to basically relearn how to read because 
especially, and I don't, you know, this is, this is an episode that's designed to work for people who are, you know, reading all different kinds of texts and sort of in all different, you know, positions of, you know, in their lives and their jobs or whatever. But some of us, you know, have to read a ton of stuff and whether that's stuff you want to read or not, there's definitely strategies for doing it. You know, Laura mentioned finding themes and I definitely have strategies for that that I'm going to share. It's not just like, oh, find the themes, that's easy and then it solves your problems. Um, I didn't go theme. (laughs) (laughs) But like, before I had a sense of how to do that, I was just, I was like drowning. And, uh, you know, again, there are all of these people who could pull out, you know, I feel like Foucault is like the boogeyman of like this podcast, but (laughs) pull out Foucault. And, you know, I had to read Foucault later that year. And I was like, I don't understand what is happening. Like, I truly don't get it. And then like, went to class and just was silent and listened to other people. And that helps. But like, I don't know, sometimes just as much as you try, there's going to be stuff that you can't do on your own. And like, that doesn't mean that you're a failure. I felt like a failure. But I think that if I went back now, you know, several years later, and revisited some of the texts, not just because I, you know, know more about the theoretical landscape that I'm dealing with or whatever, but also Mm -hmm. just because I know how to read better. And I also know I'm not stupid. And that makes such a difference. Totally. Yeah. I completely agree with all of that. And in a completely different vein than what Ambria described, I never really sought out traditionally challenging books as a child. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I never went to the library and was like, hey. Um, But I loved reading so much and I wanted to read all of the time. But I sought out books that I really wanted to read, that I was excited to read, and that I found a lot of joy in reading. And I will talk about this later in the podcast, but I think making sure that you're reading for fun, at least sometimes, Mm. is also crucial to reading harder stuff. And I would say that the hardest reading I've ever done was Marx's Capital. (laughs) Really typical of a leftist woman. But I started and stopped it about a thousand times, and I couldn't actually get through it until I was part of a reading group because reading capital alone not only seems like a academic nightmare but it's not it's like you want to talk about some of the things you want to talk about Marx being a shyster you want to talk about those things and like laugh with people and you also want to be like what the fuck stop talking about coats and linens like just stop (laughs) and I feel like if you didn't have that then yeah that's just so much harder yeah exactly exactly and that's is the part where we got the music break (laughs) and this is the part where we have the music break
our listeners I want to give them some tips can you whisper it Laura tips and tricks tips tips and tricks what tips and tricks tips tips and tricks beautiful so okay my number one (laughs) my number one biggest tip for becoming a confident reader okay it's gonna blow your mind just just read it don't understand it too bad whatever just keep going. Don't stop and read the same sentence 20 times. I mean, yeah, maybe think about things every now and then, but keep keep going. Move on if you don't get it. Being in school and just having to finish my readings, whether I understood them or not, I think is what really changed things for me, but you can do this on your own too. I kind of thought like, if I come to something challenging and move on, I'm like fucking up. I'm not doing it right. I can't do that. If you're like that, you have to learn to let go and just read the book. Um, finish it, read another one, trust that things are going to start sticking out to you because they will. Things that like you didn't think you were absorbing, you'll see in another book and you'll be like, aha, I remember that. You're going to start noticing things, remembering snippets here and there, you know, these things start to come together. And something that you are going to find out about theoretical books is that they're incredibly, incredibly repetitive. (laughs) Um, they are, the author knows that the ideas are difficult and they're going to say the same thing in a thousand different ways and maybe even say the same thing in a thousand of the same ways. Um, so I promise you have a new chance to understand something really big about the book. Every page that you read too fucking real, just plow through it, just plow through it because truly, yeah, you're, you are going to. No, you're going to walk away with way more than you think that you were going to walk away with. Like, I sometimes will read something and then be like, I didn't understand that at all. And then I'll get into a group setting where we're all talking about it. And I'll be like, actually, this is what I got out of this. And people will be like, wow, that was so insightful, Laura. And I'll be like, thank you. Oh, my God, for real. There were so many times I didn't think I understood something. And then I came to talk in a group about it. And somebody was like, what about this sentence? And then I was like, oh, I think it means this. And I was like, what? Who said that? Like, (laughs) and they're like, you did, Ambria. It was within you all along. I'm like, shit. Damn. I was actually just reading an article about the the way that we learn. And one of the points that I think she's a neuroscientist that she made about it is that there's two basic ways you learn things directly like where you spend a short amount of time really focusing on something trying to incorporate new concepts but that you also learn more indirectly or I think they called it dispersed learning which is where like you'll go take a shower or take a walk and you kind of let your mind wander and that's another way of understanding a concept and applying it and so I definitely think there's merit to the, the just keep going and giving yourself sort of time to marinate with something. And that may explain some of why when you go to talk about it later, you actually are, way, you have a way better understanding of it than you thought. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Some other things that I would suggest, if you're setting yourself up with a reading list, like say you're like, okay, New Year's resolution, I'm going to read this book. And like you kind of set yourself up with the list. Sprinkle books that you'll read for fun throughout that list. Yeah. Like maybe... 
like read two challenging books and a fun book and then two challenging books and a fun book because if you if going to read becomes a dreaded activity that you're doing to obtain more information but you find no enjoyment out of it then you're not going to really tackle challenging things. You have to start to trick yourself, <laughs> trick yourself into loving reading. And then maybe you will actually just love reading and you won't be tricking yourself anymore. <laughs> I I think this is so important and I do it all the time when I find that I'm struggling with some readings. My go-to is young adult fantasy fiction. So it's really, really great. And I think that then I can go back and feel more invigorated about reading other books. I also would suggest that when you sit down to read a really difficult text, be fully awake or caffeinated. Don't read it in your bed. Give yourself large blocks of time. Similar to the story Kellen said, don't just give yourself like 30 minutes while you're sitting on a subway. Like set yourself up, light some candles, put on some, I don't know, there's some like focus playlists out there. Put one of those on in the background and just give yourself time to ramp up because often an author, even if they're really challenging, they start to have a pattern with how they're writing and it takes a while for your brain to understand that pattern. Um, For me, it usually takes about 30 minutes to get into the swing of their pattern. But then I find that reading for that particular author becomes much easier Mm -hmm. and I feel much more able to tackle it. Yeah, I actually, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because that's been, thinking about patterns has been really crucial for me and like literally just surviving grad school because there is just too much, I mean, I, I get assigned too much to actually read all of it. And so you have to have strategies for like, how do I digest all of this information and still understand what's going on, but also get through it all. And that's created, I think that's given me some tips and tricks tips and tricks tips tips and tricks Thanks. that have been really helpful in outside reading as well so like kind of going back to that finding themes discussion it's really important but it sounds totally meaningless if you don't know sort of what you mean by like looking for themes or whatever i sort of consciously created or consciously worked on creating that skill in myself so i have a way of doing things now where i attack a book by looking at the author's writing style first and answering some questions for myself, like where does she put the most important information? Is it at the end of her paragraphs? Is it in the first few pages Mm -hmm. of a chapter? And once I figure that out, those are the places I zero in on, even if it means reading the book like a little bit out of order. So some authors treat the last paragraph of every chapter like a summary. And if you read yes. <laughs> if you read the last paragraph of the chapter and then read the chapter, if that's how the author writes, it makes a lot more sense because you get the little blurb mm-hmm. version first and then you know sort of the rest of it. And it's like, why didn't you just put that up front? I don't know. They didn't. That's how they decided to read it. But I think... And read the introductions. Like read... If you're reading an academic book in particular, read the introduction because they're going to lay out every theme of every chapter pretty much in very plain language or more plain language than they will in their chapters. Yeah, and I think asking yourself... Where does the author put the important stuff is sometimes easier than just saying to yourself, all right, time to find the important stuff. Because if you have mm. if you have a strategy for finding the crucial information, it makes things so much easier 
whether you're tearing through hundreds of pages a week uh, and need to get to the point quickly, or whether you're reading in your like very precious free time and want to really make sure you're getting the most out of a book. And I think sort of another piece of advice that I would give that's maybe a little bit more controversial is going online and looking at stuff like Sparknotes. Um, yes, it de- do it. <laughs> It's, you know, doesn't substitute for the actual thing at all. You know, this is not like a go do this before your fourth period English test type thing, but it, <laughs> it can be really helpful for getting yourself comfortable in a text. So like going back to my mm. hellish first year of grad school again, I was in this class called Histories of Capitalism. And basically all that we read was these like really heavy theoretical texts. And I personally have been slow getting into to theory. I'm much more of an empirical writer when it comes to history. I hope that makes sense to listeners. It, it just means that I'm really interested in the nitty gritty details of what life was like in a particular place in a particular time. But over the last year I've gotten or last year or so, maybe the last couple of years, I've gotten a lot better. But back my first year of grad school, I was just consistently lost. And so we were reading, I think, like Wallerstein's World Systems stuff. Um, Oh, Jesus. If that's something rings a bell to anybody. It was just really thick, heavy book that no, I just like my eyes glazed over every time I tried to read it. And the most helpful thing for me was to go online and find some teaching materials on the text and read those first. And so I read these online materials, like, that broke down, you know, the structure of the book, and I made an outline for myself off of these things, like, you know, here's the first chapter, here's the main point, here are the supporting Mm. arguments. I outlined the whole book like that, and then I went through it myself, and I was filling filling in my outline from the real book. And, like, maybe this sounds like a lot of work and more than you need to do for, you know, whatever, but suddenly, at least, you know with this sort of labor-intensive practice, I was anchored and my eyes weren't glazing over as much. And even if I couldn't really get what one section was saying, I could comfortably move move on because I already knew what was coming next. Mm. So like, there's no shame in seeking outside information. Um, I think some people are like, well, I should be able to figure this all out on my own. And sure you could, but with a lot of the stuff that I feel like our listeners are reading, you know, people have been reading angles for literally like a century and a half, you know, so why would you read it alone when you could read it in such a sort of more rich way by building off of all of these other ideas that other people who've, you know, similarly out of curiosity picked up that book have been thinking. Mm. You have all of Mm. that at your fingertips. Yeah, on that note, Talk to other people. Mm -hmm. This is huge. If you don't have anyone to talk to in your everyday life, find somebody online to talk to. Find a thread. Find a discussion board. Also, though, make sure that it's not somebody who's just going to talk down to you and be dogmatic about their own interpretations and, like, be like, oh, are you new to this? Let me show off. Like, try to avoid that kind of thing if you can help it because it's not going to be good for your confidence. And also, once again, people who act like that are usually fakers. I find, you know, there's exceptions to this rule, like any rule. But I find that most people that are really, really knowledgeable are easy to talk to because they mm-hmm. understand that their own interpretation isn't gospel and they want to nurture your curiosity um, and they're going to be excited that you're reading it and they're going to be interested in what you think about it. So you want to look for that sort of thing. And then also be really frank about what you don't understand. We need more of that all around. Mm-hmm. And that's really the way 
to grow is to talk to other people really frankly about just how much you don't get. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Hope, do you have any tips and tricks? Tips, (laughs) tips, and tricks. No, not really any that haven't already been said. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. Do you want to give us your book recommendations? Did you conclude any? You don't have to. Okay. I did. Oh, I see. Yeah. A couple of books that uh, were, I think, all challenging for me to read for different reasons that I wanted to recommend. One is called Bless Me Ultima by Rudolfo Amaya. And it's about a kid who has a curandera that he's working with. And um, I love um, magical realism as something that happens in Spanish literature a lot. And um, that book is like full of it. It's a really interesting, challenging, surreal book to mm. read. And obviously I love magic. Yes. So that makes it fun. <laughs> um, I also love Garcia Marquez. So A Hundred Years of Solitude is similarly dense and complicated, but really worthwhile. And then uh, I ended up doing mostly fiction for this because that's what I've been into lately. Um, I love Alice Walker. I love The Color Purple. And she did a, a fiction book called The Way Forward is with a Broken Heart that she wrote after the end of a marriage of hers. And I just think it's a, it's a really interesting story about being in an interracial relationship um, during the civil rights movement. And she speaks a lot from her own perspective, but fictionalizes it. So it's a good read. Amazing. Uh, my recommendations. I couldn't narrow it down. <laughs> Sorry, five. Sorry. I have the autobiography of Asada Shakur. It's called Asada. So good. Unbelievably incredible. It's not a difficult read. It's She really pulls you in and helps just do an incredible narration of her life, which is incredible. The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, which is a fantasy book. And Patrick Rothfuss is an incredible author. It's part of a trilogy and only the first two are out right now but it is in my opinion some of the best fantasy out there it's it is a challenging for it's challenging reading for fantasy in the sense that like it takes maybe 75 pages or so to get really hooked but it is so worth it i cannot say that enough it's one of the best books of all time the brief wondrous life of oscar wow by Juno diaz Um, He's a Dominican-American author, and this book is about, it's generally focused on a Dominican boy's, a Dominican-American boy's experience in America, Um, but it also has a lot to do with the dictator in the Dominican Republic, Trujillo, and it's just so brilliant and amazing, and I think my, my program is American Studies, and so I do a lot of history with the hemispheric americas but it's also about transnationalism and i think this fictional book does a really good job with that the next one is girls to the front by sarah marcus this is a uh it's a non-fiction book about the riot girl movement which i think all of you are aware that i'm obsessed with at this point (laughs) (laughs) i am a broken record I am obsessed with it, but this book is so good. It's so good. And it's uh, it's just so inspiring for women and makes me feel like we're all powerful goddesses. So highly recommend. 
And then I think the most academic book I have to offer is Dispossessed Lives by Marissa Fuentes. And it recently came out and it's it's really academic and it's about archival writing, which um, if you're not aware, archival are um, is generally where you get a lot of first or primary sources. If, it, if you're not doing ethnographic or interview based research, you're generally getting your primary research through an archive and so it's newspapers it's a lot of different things um and she's looking at the role of enslaved women in the caribbean and how she can speak about their lives based on archival research so it's pretty nerdy but super cool if you want it's a short book but it's challenging in the best ways so if you're looking for an inroad to that i would recommend that book I want everyone to stop what they're doing and read The Black Jacobins. Yes. (laughs) Yes. This book is by C.L.R. James. It's one of my favorite books that exist. Um, It's about the Haitian Revolution, um, which is the only instance in history when slaves uh, directly themselves have risen up and overthrown their masters. Also in leftism, the French Revolution is something we talk about a lot, and it is totally, totally, what's the word I'm looking for? You can't separate the French Revolution from the Haitian Revolution. Yes. But they, everybody does. They are so wrapped up within each other, and Haitians fight, fighting against, you know, their own enslavement is, you know, key to what was going on during the French Revolution and also the French coming out against slavery eventually. Mm. And they're often credited as people who gave up slavery early. They didn't do that just out of the kindness of their hearts, right? What happened in Haiti, what was carried out by the slaves was a huge part of that. Another book is... Also, wait, one more thing about the Black Jacobins. It's also (laughs) written... It is challenging in some ways, theoretically. C.L.R. James was a Marxist. He was a socialist. So there's there's definitely a Marxist element to the way it's written, but it's very, very, very engaging. The way he Mm. writes about the characters, the leaders of the movement, and what they did. It's just very engrossing. Um, The Second Sex uh, by Simone de Beauvoir. Um, I do have to admit that... This might be more interesting if you're coming from a background of philosophy because Mm. she talks a lot about um, sort of what philosophy, what Western philosophy got wrong about women. It's also a huge book and really you don't need to read the whole thing. It's really long, but you can probably get recommendations online about what the most essential bits are and Mm. just read parts of it. I think it's totally worth it to just read like a few chapters of that book. I also want to recommend The Pre-Socratics. This is just a fun book. So the Pre-Socratics is a collection of just snippets by various ancient, like mostly Greek, but some other different people too, thinkers. And so it's just, you know, you, you might have heard of the old theory that, you know, what is it? The world is like a turtle. The world is balanced on the back of a turtle or something. Mm-hmm. So it's philosophers who basically have, you know just all these theories that seem really preposterous to us now about like what heat is and what things are made of. And it's just really wild to think about so long ago, the world being so mysterious. And we have this record of people just sitting around and trying to be like, man, what's this shit made of? 
Yes. What's that in the sky? Here's yes. my ideas. And like, here's the reasons I think that it's so, it's pretty wild to read. And then The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Yes. Essential reading just for our present moment in the police state, which is the United States of America. This goes into how that police state uh, disproportionately affects black people and other people of color, um, not only by imprisoning them, but by making them by making them second class citizens, both during their imprisonment and before their imprisonment when they're being harassed, right? When they haven't been charged with anything. And then after their imprisonment, when they are labeled as criminals and have to do parole and probation and all these things. So it's really essential. I I think, you know, before I read that book, I only read it like a year ago. I I think, you know, I I was definitely like, oh, the system is racist. But there's a difference between saying, oh, it seems that way to me and actually reading the ways in which it is um, Mm -hmm. and really feeling like you understand just how far these systems go to intentionally do these things to people. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's all of my suggestions. Cool. Yeah. My first suggestion for books is always Racecrafts by Barbara and Karen Fields. I've talked about it on this podcast before, and I will probably do it again. She, uh, I mean, I've met both of them, but I I know Barbara Fields personally. Um, She is also a Marxist, and I think she pairs really well with the Black Jacobins book, which, as Ambria mentioned, is, I mean, I just want to second that recommendation about what is, like, a truly amazing historical occurrence, the the only slave uprising to successfully overthrow a nation, which is, you know, again, just amazing. So Racecraft, talked about it before, it is a an excellent Marxist look at the way that we think and talk about race in the United States and how the way that we talk about race um, perpetuates racism. My second recommendation is Masters of Small Worlds by Stephanie McCurry. I am recommending this for people who grew up in the South, particularly. I read this book in college, or I read a section of it first in college, and it explained to me all of these things that have been sort of swirling around, connected to each other in a particular way in the South, race, gender, class and religion and how they were connected and I just the the particular situation in which I grew up and the things I was trying to puzzle out as to sort of the various ways that inequality functioned in the world around me and couldn't figure out Stephanie does an amazing job with that and for both Racecraft and Masters of Small Worlds, there are definitely like some chapters that are more essential than others. You can hit me up on Twitter and I can gladly recommend to you um, which ones. But of course, reading the whole thing is also a great idea. My third recommendation, which I think everyone should read, is No Constitutional Right to be Ladies by Linda Kerber. And it's about the American legal system and the various, it's actually five court cases from the revolutionary era to like the 1970s and 80s that women have lost trying to gain equal rights but also equal responsibilities in our nation. And it's sort of this long running tally of sort of the various mechanisms of oppression. Um, And it also does a really good job of like jolting, I think millennials especially awake to the fact that like, You know, when a lot of our parents were our age, women couldn't get credit cards without their fathers or husbands signing off on them. Marital rape 
was not recognized by national law until many of us were like toddlers. Stuff like that, that we, I think, maybe take for granted nowadays is Mm. um, actually very new. And it puts a lot of things into context. So I think No Constitutional Right to Be Ladies by Linda Kerber is a must read. And then finally, my last recommendation is uh, Paradise by Toni Morrison. It's not most people's favorite book by her, I think, but it's like... It's like Faulkner. If Faulkner were written by a woman who actually understood women and, like, wasn't intent on just confusing the shit out of everybody all the time. (laughs) Um, It's just really beautifully written. It's definitely, like, a confusing book that you have to spend a lot of time with in the way that I think Faulkner is, where, you know, a lot of times you don't fully know what's going on. But it's so engaging, and it takes... The whole thing is about taking women, and particularly women of color seriously as individuals with like you know full interiority and it's just it's frankly just beautiful and about you know trying to rise above abuse and racism and just all of the shit that keeps people down in this world so yeah amazing i think on that note we are going to wrap it up i just wanted to never fear i did look up high fructose corn syrup Um, and the first article that came up said five reasons high fructose corn syrup will kill you Mm. (laughs) god i'm not reading the rest of it by the hands of corn syrup mark my words mortals (laughs) okay question how am i the only one not drinking alcohol and yet i'm the one who's gonna die by her beverage choice riddle that's what i was talking about riddle me this (laughs) better get drunk Listen, there's mixed research on alcohol. They're pretty conclusive on corn syrup. <laughs> Too real. Too real. Drinking never Amazing. hurt me. That's something else my grandpappy used to say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So make sure y'all get at us on Twitter, at Season of the Bee, Instagram as well. Same thing. We're on Facebook. We have a website, seasonofthebee.com. There's going to be a new blog post. Oh, it's probably going to be out before this. I'm just going to delete that part. (laughs) (laughs) There is a new blog post. Also, we are almost out of merch on our website, but we're working Mm. on getting some more stuff and making it available. Yeah. If you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. If you're listening on your phone right now, it's just like literally right there. Just click it. Give us... You know, however many stars you think we deserve. No, no. But only rate us. Only rate us if you're giving us all the stars. And if you rate yeah. us, give us all the stars. Yeah. LOL. That, what? Yeah, that too. Yes. That's a better answer. So yeah, do that. We have different opinions, I guess. On <laughs> give us give us your money on Patreon. And if you want to eventually help us raise money so that we can get better recording stuff. Yeah, just holler at our email. If you're like a person that's like, hey, I'm interested in helping buy you a new laptop, like send us an email. We'll be like, hey, cool. We can connect you. Yes. All right. Well. Our email is seasonofthebeat at gmail.com. Yeah. Send us your music. Not if you're a man. Okay. Bye. 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 Love you. Bye.
Next is going to be the remaining four of us in a three accordion, one triangle project. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, in the band, I want to play the slappy knees. Yes. I want to slap my knees. I want to play the stick. (laughs) You're so good at that. I'm real good at slapping my knees. My grandpappy taught me that. (laughs) Awesome, awesome, flousome. Grandpappy Slappy. <laughs> Grandpappy Slappy. That's my DJ name. <laughs> Grandpappy Slappy coming Grand down with sick Slappy beats. coming at you tonight. Wait, hang on. Time out. Has this podcast just been a way for Ambria to get into the knee slapping game? Oh man! Are you playing the long? We are onto you. We are onto you. Four weeks and came back, and I was like, "Guys, slapping my knees." (laughs) This has all been building up to.